The worst day on Wall Street since the crash of 1980. The Dow traders are standing there watching in amazement. I don't blame them. We're now down 43%. Almost everything there completely wiped out. I was away one weekend and she rang me up and she said, I've got some really bad news for you, Richard. And I said, what's that? She said, we're going to put you into administration. I lost everything. It was the 21st of November, 2012. And the reason I remember that date is because of my ex-wife's birthday. Mm. Uh, the police at seven o'clock in the morning came to my house, my business partner's house, my sister's house, my ex-wife's house, and arrested us all. Welcome to the Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Dodge. And I'm the CEO and founder of the Bournemouth Sevens Festival and the revolutionary Event Crowd, our new online events course. On this podcast, I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. So if you want to hear more like this, make sure you subscribe, leave us a glowing review, and you can follow me on Instagram at Dodge Woodall. I reply to every single message. Spanning four decades of business, Richard Carr's history is filled full of personal and financial successes, but also some devastating setbacks. Richard made a name for himself in the world of fast food, nightclubs, bars, bowling and property development, and he's been behind many multi-million pound deals. But when it all came crashing down, he was forced to rebuild from financial ruin and face lengthy fraud investigations with the threat of prison. Richard admits he's a Marmite character and everyone seems to have an opinion on him. So I was keen to hear his side of the story. Here is the eventful life of Mr. Richard Carr. This uh, roll all the way back to years, where did you grow up and how did you first get into business? Uh, well, I grew up here uh, in Bournemouth and um, I was uh, shipped off to boarding school at seven years old, which is uh, when I look back at that and think about my young children, I think, God, how did my parents do that to yeah. me? So I had a, sort of quite a tough upbringing, really, in boarding school because boarding school in those days was a tough place. And um, I came back here, obviously, after failing all my O-levels after uh, school and um, messed around for a few years and decided I needed to get into business and started when I was 20. 20? Yeah. What was your first business? So I, at the time, fast food was a big thing. My parents were hoteliers and they were very keen for me to get involved with their business and I didn't want to be there to do that. And... Um, McDonald's had just arrived in the UK. Fast food was the big thing, and I wanted to get into fast food. And um, I got them to sort of lend me some money to buy my first restaurant, and uh, it went on from there. Lovely. What year are we talking here? 1980. 1980. And how much did your mum and dad lend you to get that first restaurant? 100 grand. 100 Gs. Wow. Back in the 80s. Yeah, but the old man charged me 15%. Did he? <laughs> so play to it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, so, so they get, they gave you an investment of hundred grand to get you going. What did you see? Where would your entrepreneurial spirit come from to realise there was a gap in the market? Well, fast food was huge at that time. You know, there was there was lots of different types of brands emerging, and um, I bought an old Golden Egg restaurant in Bournemouth Square, and I rebranded it Hamby House, and I wanted to start my own brand at that time. Okay, and uh, I copied the uh, or, or or plagiarized, I suppose is what you would say. <laughs> the wimpy brand slightly and uh, they got very upset about that and one day the guy a guy walked in the restaurant and said i'd like to see the owner of this restaurant 
and uh, he sat down. So I came and sat with him, and he was a big, big guy, very old school, you know, very well dressed. And uh, he said, um, "I want you to be a franchisee at Wimpy." He said, "I like what you've done here," and I said, oh, "I really want to do my own thing." He said, "No, that's not going to be possible." He said, "Otherwise, we're going to sue you, and we're going to do you for passing off." <laughs> and uh, I went. Oh, right. Okay. I said, well, how are you going to help me then? And he said, well, I want you to become a Wimpy franchisee. He said, we're starting this new type of restaurant, counter service restaurant to compete with McDonald's and I want you. And uh, we went on from there and I became the largest uh, Wimpy franchisee in the the UK. Uh, Restaurants, uh, most of the restaurants are in the West End of London and uh, built that business uh, and floated that on the stock market in 1987. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. So when you become a franchisee, how did you know that you become a success on the first one to then say, like, I want to scale up? I wasn't. The first one they gave me yeah. was in Boscombe, the first site. Is that- and I, I, I got the money via them yep. uh, to open it. How much did they charge you to be a franchisee? 8% of turnover. Okay, so they gave you a freebie, but they said, whatever the turnover is, we want... No, it's not a freebie. They, they, they effectively backed the loan. Okay. So so it was a loan that was effectively backed by United Biscuits and opened first restaurant and it failed. Uh, it just lost money from day one. Yeah. And to be frank with you, I mean, I should have known better because I already had another restaurant in Boscombe. Yeah. And at that stage, Boscombe was going through a bit of a, down, a downturn because yeah. of the advent of Benidorm and all of that. Boscombe yeah. used to be an amazing place Did to, it? to have a business uh, prior prior to sort of the uh, bucket, bucket holiday. Yeah. Anyway, so um, I opened this first restaurant, didn't work, but they had a restaurant, a table service restaurant, like an old style Wimpy mm. that you would remember and I'd mm. remember from when we were kids, mm. uh, in Westover Road, which made an absolute fortune because it was, at that time, Westover Road was just booming. You had two cinemas, had the ice rink. I used to take a fortune. And I said to uh, Ian Petrie, who was the chief executive of Wimpy, I said, look, you need to let me have that restaurant. Uh, because Boscombe just isn't working for me. And he, he he agreed to sell it to me and not for very much money. Yeah. And um, that sort of rescued me. That bailed me out of my Boscombe issue. And um, I went on from there. I took a site in Guildford, took a site in Southampton, took a site in Portsmouth and worked my way up the M3 corridor until I was in the West End of London. And then I had a business that I floated, as I say, on the unlisted securities market in 1987. And um, we were off. Wow. And what what does it mean by you floated the business? So it became a public company. Yeah. Yeah, it became a public company. And um, what are the benefits of becoming a public company and floating the business? Did you personally get a nice bit of cash out of that? Well, there's another story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, floated the business, which what became a very famous day with Black Monday. And uh, when the stock market crashed in 87, that was the day of our flotation. So we were originally due to float the company, 87p a share. Flotation was uh, was curtailed because of the because of Black Monday, and in the end, I got the the uh, placing away at fifty p. So I was meant to come out with like five or six million pounds, yeah. personally, yeah, um, which is a lot of money, of course. Then and uh, as it is now, well, yeah, but it was an awful lot, an of awful money, lot, yeah. an awful lot of yeah. money then, yeah. And uh, it all went wrong, and we got it away in the end. But I obviously came out with a lot less money than I thought I would, and um, uh, we just cracked on. Do you remember how much money you come out with? I think I was meant to come out with uh, seven or eight million. I came out with 
probably five or six hundred thousand. Is that right? Yeah. Wow! Because I left. I, did, I in the end, I didn't take my shares out. I, I just I left them in. You just left them in there, I hoping them they would they would be. And then they went from fifty odd p up to about one pound thirty over over time. Okay. So how long did you stay in that? How long did you stay in that business from? You floated it in uh, eighty seven. How I long did you? Ninety four. Ninety four. So that was purely wimpy still. No, in nineteen ninety. Yeah. I sold. Uh, so wimpy got bought out. Um, by um, Burger King, which was owned by Grand Metropolitan. Okay. And I was at a garden party. I was involved in the Prince's Business Youth Trust. I was at a garden party in Kensington Palace. And at the time, there was uh, the chairman of, of the company was there. Uh, his name was uh, Shepherd, his surname. And um, I got in, uh, introduced to him. And I sort of said to him, uh, you know, I'm one of the largest franchisees in Wimpy. And I understand that you've just bought Burger King. And so he was the, he was the chairman of Grand Metropolitan, and uh, he said, "Yeah, that's right." He said, um, "Do you own all the restaurants in the West End of London?" I said, "Yeah, that's right. That's me." He said, "Oh yes." He said, "We've talked about you." I said, "Well, I want to sell them to you." The next morning, I met him for breakfast, did a deal, sold the business for I think fourteen and a half million pounds. That was in nineteen ninety. So I came out of fast food altogether in one one hit. Uh, Rebranded the company from Allied Restaurants to Allied Leisure. And then engulfed in my ten-pin bowling, nightclubs, bars business, um, which I built from there. Fantastic! So, what year was that? So that was nineteen ninety. Yeah. So nineteen ninety. What what gap in the market you see? You've obviously come out with a good pound note. You didn't take all of that money. There must be. You must have spent. No, that I left money. it in the business. Oh, you left, left it in the business. I left, I left it all in the business. Okay. And then what was the what was the gap in the market in the early nineties to see that opportunity of bowling alleys and, and well I I I really used to enjoy going ten-pin bowling yeah and uh, as a kid and I used to think. Well, when I got involved with fast food, Wimpy was a pretty down and out brand. Yeah. And it was pretty shoddy. And, you know, we we, we sort of like modified that with the counter service restaurants. And it became quite a quite a hit brand in the early 80s, yeah. Wimpy. And, and just, to, just so the listeners know here, Wimpy was burger and chips on a plate. Yeah. Is that correct? Uh, originally. Versus McDonald's where you just get a takeaway. And yeah, so I was in the McDonald's comp- competition. Yes. I wasn't burger and chips on a plate. Yeah. So I was, I was. I mean, people, a lot of people won't remember it. It was counter service. Okay. So just like McDonald's now, you go up to the counter you okay. order and you sit down. Yeah. Um, so it was proper fast food. Yeah. Un- unlike what you get today now. I mean, yeah. like it's really strange because a lot of McDonald's now have gone back to... Crazy, uh, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 yeah. it's quite odd. Yeah. Because I used to go bowling quite a bit as a kid. And I think used to, and I, one day I just thought to myself, do you know the whole bowling thing is a big thing, but it just needs modernising. Yes. The the unfortunate thing with bowling is you used to get a lot of league bowlers used to dominate bowling alleys. Yeah. And I just thought, no, let's make this a family yes. experience. So I took the name Mega Bowl. Yeah. Trademarked it. Opened my first bowling centre at Tower Park in Pool. In Pool. And thirty six lanes, as, as because it was mega bowl, yeah. it had to be big, yeah. big and brash. Uh, put decent food in it, put decent bar in it, put decent amusement machines in it, and yeah. it just went off like you know I mad. Bet. And um, what year did Tower Park open? Do you remember roughly nineteen eighty nine? Okay, November nineteen eighty nine. So you went in there with a fresh idea into somewhere that it was like an American, yeah, place where people would go for a nightclub, restaurants, bowling, cinema. Well, Tower Park. I mean. Uh, the, the the Tower Park story is a yeah. whole different story because obviously we took the venue nightclub, mm-hmm. which was two acres, eighty thousand square feet. Which night. is what in capacity? Uh, it was two thousand five hundred people. So it's one right? of the one of the mega clubs in the country. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So we took the. I mean, it was a massive risk. Yeah. So we took the nightclub, the bowling centre, 
the feeder bar. And funny enough, at the time we took the Burger where where the Burger King is now. Okay, that that was all that was all Allied Leisure, and, and you were the owner of Allied Leisure. Yeah, I, well, I was the chief executive. Okay, it was a public company. Yeah, okay. Uh, so I owned I don't know probably forty fifty percent. Yeah. Um, anyway, I took the took the whole bowling thing and just basically did what we did with Wimpy. Yeah. And it just went off mad, and yeah. we, we were opening bowls all over the country. We had bowls as far north as Edinburgh, Glasgow. Um, we had two in Manchester, um, Streatham, where you come from, yeah. Streatham Mega Bowl. Mm. Uh, which is actually come from there, but Clapham, Brixton, well, Streatham. Sort of, yeah, yeah, sort of, they're all close to each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all villages, yeah. right, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so it was a massive success. Yeah. And um, so then Allied Leisure became, you know, very big in Tempe Bowling on Edgertown yeah. Leisure Parks, and, and that's how it happened. Wonderful. So what was the next move from bowling then? Did you see the next move as nightclubs? Because we're talking 90s here. When, when nightclubs come off from the rave scene in the late 80s, the early 90s, when they were going actually into the clubs, you were the pioneer, I'd imagine, of opening these mega clubs. We were the pioneer, or I was the pioneer, mm. of Edgertown Leisure, um, Light Tower Park, and that's what we pushed forward. What do you mean by that, Edgertown Leisure? Um, was that is that your company name, or was it was the, the idea? No, you the idea was to create very much what happened with retail, yeah. with Edgertown Retail. Uh, happened with leisure and the advent of places like Tower Park. And, and there were a lot of these Edgertown leisure places. Unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way, I mean, things have moved on, yeah. obviously, dramatically since then. Uh, those sort of places have sort of wilted a little bit. I mean, yeah. even Tower Park's wilted. Yeah. It's getting old now, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, we pushed very hard on that and we were very successful at it. So bowling, doing extremely well in across the country. Yeah. Nightclub you had in Paul in Tower Park. Where else did you expand to night? Actually, owning nightclubs. So we had nightclubs in uh, Paul, uh, well, Paul, Bournemouth, Chippenham, Bedford, uh, Dundee. I mean, all over the yeah. place. In fact, yeah. we had you know big nightclubs. And uh, you know, when I look back at my life now, it's a really interesting thing, Dodge. Yeah. Do you know the one thing I regret in my life? Tell me. In business. Go on. Getting involved in nightclubs. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I um, I look back at it. Interesting. Now. Why? I, I look back at it now and think, how on earth did I deal with all of that rubbish that I dealt with yeah. for thirty five years? Yeah, you know what it's like. Yeah. You're, de- you're 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 putting on an event, a big event once a year. Mm. You've got every week. It was dealing with the police. Yes, dealing with the local authorities. Yeah. Dealing with you know things that happen in the yeah. club at weekends. Yeah. And I look back now and think, why on earth did I deal with that for 35 years? Because it was good money. Difficult, difficult business. But very good money. In the early days. Yes. I mean, if you go back to the late, late sort of 90s, early 2000s, you know, it was amazing, amazing money. You could make a fortune. Absolutely. I mean, I I laugh, you know, when I look at people, you know, I've got friends involved in that business now and they phone me up and ask me for advice and bits and pieces occasionally. And like, you know, I, I find it amazing that. 30 years ago, 25, 30 years ago, we were selling bottles of hooch yeah. for £1.50 yeah. on yeah. student night. Yeah, yeah. And and 30 years later, they're charging £1.50 for the equivalent product yeah. today. I find it amazing that we were paying doorman like £5 an hour, and now you're paying doorman £15, £20 an hour, yeah. staff £3 an hour, and now £10 an hour. Yeah. And yet the product you're selling hasn't gone yeah. up yeah. in proportion. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's not the business it was, but... It, it is a very very difficult business, and people don't people don't understand how difficult it is. Yeah. On a Monday morning, you wake up and you're you dealing know, with aggro from the weekend before. Exactly. Yeah. 
exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a problem. I think more so for you because you were there with the license. Yeah. Someone takes your license away, you lose your business. Yeah. You've got 20, 30 security on the door. You've got all the bar staff. You've got all the overheads constantly. It was, it was different for me because I was a promoter for 10 years, throwing 1,500 parties in all the nightclubs around the country where I'd go in, pack out the club for 2,500 people, take the door money and drive away. Exactly. I'll see you next week. So for me, I guess it was a different experience to you, but you've, you've, you've created some mega clubs around the country. What was the next step for you? And how many years did you do this nightclub world for? Well, on and off for a long time. Yeah. I mean, you know, right up until uh, about 2007, yeah. uh, 2006, 2007, I was involved in one way or another in, in, in that business. Um, I mean, it is a, it is a, it, it's got its benefits, yeah. I mean, being involved in that world. Mm. Um, but it's, you know, from a strictly business point of view, it is a very, very difficult business. Mm. And, um, you know, as I said to you, if I look back at my business life, it's probably the, the mistake I made. Wow, that's really interesting yeah, to if, hear. If, I, if I'd have, if I, when, when, when we did Allied Leisure, if yeah. I'd have stuck to temping bowling, yeah. and that sort of business, family entertainment business, yeah. I probably... Uh, wouldn't have run into the trouble that I have yeah. over the years with with authorities and with image and with with, with reputation. Yeah. The trouble is, as soon as you're involved in nightclubs, uh, you're perceived as a criminal. Mm. And if you look at every television program where there's a gangster film, there is always a nightclub a club involved. There's yeah. always a club involved. <laughs> and, and, and and me and my partner, we we quite regularly laugh about it. Yeah. You know that we're watching uh, some sort of film that's got a gangster element in it, yeah. and the next minute they're in a <laughs> nightclub. <laughs> Yeah. And 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 I just think that perception is everything in yeah. life, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, I just think that you're you're immediately branded mm. um, as a as, as a wrongman mm. if you're involved in in that sort of business. Mm. So we're in 1994 yep. now, and um, I I well, but prior to 94, I basically got eased out of the Allied Allied Leisure. Eased out means well by the board of directors for what? Um, because I was. So as the business grew, yeah. I brought on more and more non-executive directors. Yeah. Um, I brought on a lot of grey hair yeah. to give credibility to the board. But mm. I was always a bit of a maverick. Mm. And, I, and, you know, and I, I put my hands up to the fact that I am a maverick in, in the way I think, in the way I conduct my business yeah. life, and in the way that I take risks on occasionally. Yeah. Uh, occasionally. And Isn't it lovely taking a risk? I think it's, well, that's what makes us entrepreneurs. Absolutely. You know, yeah. and... Um, the recession came in the late 90s, uh, or in the early 90s, rather. And sort of just before that, there was a lot of corporate failures. There was Polypec, and there was various other corporate failures in, in the world. And the, this thing called the Cadbury's Report came out on the conduct of chief executives and chairmen in, 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 in public companies. Mm. And the big thing about uh, the Cabaret Report was that no person should hold the role of chairman and chief executive. Okay. And I was chairman and chief executive of Allied Leisure PLC, yeah. which was a fully quoted company yeah. at this stage. Yeah, yeah. No, it was a, it was a FTSE, FTSE company. Yeah. Uh, and because we moved up from the unlisted securities market. What's the problem with being a chairman and a CEO? Well, they said that you had too much power. Okay. Too much autonomy. Okay. And Did and you enjoy that? I, to, me, to be frank with you, it didn't matter. It didn't. I had never yeah. even dawned on me. But this report came out. It became the big thing in the corporate okay. world. Yeah. And so our corporate finance advisors, Williams Debro, said, "Richard, you need to split your roles." Yeah. And stupidly, yeah. And I say stupidly, another big mistake in my life. 
I decided I wanted to carry on as chief executive. I was young. I was gun ho yeah. and I wanted How old were you at this time, roughly? 30s? Yeah, early 30s. 30s, yeah. I wanted to carry on building this business. And I said, I'll only split my roles if we have a non-executive chairman. So a non-executive chairman doesn't get involved in day-to-day -day running. Yeah. I sort of met various people. No, I don't like him, don't like him, don't like him. And then I met this guy who remained nameless, um, who came from a quango, government quango, who actually... What's a quango? Well, it's a government finance rubbish agency isn't okay it? there's loads of this okay there. um he worked for a, a, a part of the government to do with tourism okay and um i met him i met his wife went for dinner with him went for lunch with him got on like a house on fire with mm. this guy and thought i can work with this guy he's non-executive i've still got the reins let's get on with it yeah so i agreed to split my roles he came in as non-executive chairman and I obviously stayed obviously executive, chief executive. And uh, I'll always, always remember the first board meeting. So the first board meeting uh, came. And Where were said, you? In, in, my, in our office. Uptown, Tower Park. in London. Tower, Tower Park at the time. Tower okay, Park yeah, at yeah, the yeah. time. And, you know, he sat at the top of the table where I used to sit. And I thought, mm, maybe I have made a mistake here. Sat <laughs> there. And, of course, he started running the meeting and started saying this and that. And, and, after the meeting, I said, Bill, I need to have a word with you. And uh, so he came into my office and said, you are aware that you're a non-executive chairman. Mm. You don't make policy. Mm. I report to you, but I run the business. Yeah. And he said, well, no, it's not quite the way I see it. And I said, well, well perhaps you should consider where, where you are and, and read up what, what your role is. Anyway, off he went. We shook hands and off he went. And then my PA came to see me and said, oh, I've got uh, Bill's expenses. And I looked at them and I went through them and I went, there's no way I'm signing those off. Yeah. So I rang him up and I said, look, Bill, I said, there's absolutely no way I'm signing off your expenses. Yeah. I said, can you explain to me why you've got two very substantial lunch bills here? Well, I've been to lunch with people and I've been talking about the business. So but that's not your role. Yeah. That's not your role. Anyway, so quite clearly him and I now yeah. were butting heads. Yeah. Anyway, he got quite in with the other non-execs and I think he, he decided in his own mind with the other non-execs it was time for me to be pushed aside oh, yeah. and for Allied Leisure to be moved on with okay. somebody else. Okay. And they eased me out. And uh, How did you feel about that at the time? I was, I was devastated. You were, were you? Well, I were you angry? Upset? <sighs> what sort of emotions did you go through when you're being pushed out like that, when you've created something the last from fresh? Board, the last board meeting was horrendous. The last board meeting was at Meridian Hotel in Piccadilly. And um, the business was, the, the 90s, the early 90s recession was biting. Yeah. Um, we had some very, very difficult covenants on some of the loans that we had. Mm. Um, and I, with the corporate finance advisors, Williams to Bro, had negotiated a merger with another leisure company. Yeah. Um, strangely, that was predominantly nightclub yeah, <laughs> orientated, yeah, yeah, yeah. but had a large sum of cash in their balance yeah. sheet to merge the two businesses um, the great thing about the merger would have been is that the chief executive of that business wanted to stay on as chairman. We'd have got rid of Bill. Got rid of, okay. He'd have carried stayed, on. And I'd yeah. stayed as chief executive. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so the the last board meeting was the presentation was made. Of Did you know what was coming? I, 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 I realised what they were up to. Okay. And so this is why I, I tried to put the merger together. Yeah. The merger would have been uh, the merger made in heaven yeah. for the business. Yeah. I mean, it would have trebled the size of the business. And what size was the business at the time? 
Roughly? Uh, we employed nearly 3,000 staff. Wow. Is big that right? Business. Yeah, big business. You remember what's roughly what sort of turnover business it was? I can't remember now, but well, I, I remember that we... I, I've got the last annual report. Yeah. 2,730 people, I think, we employed. Is that right? I, I present... It was presented about the merger. Yeah. And quite clearly, he'd... Teed people up. Teed up, uh, yeah. up uh, and said, we're not doing that. And I went, what do you mean we're not doing that? It's the right thing for the business. Yeah. No, we're not doing that. Uh, we we want you to resign. And uh, I said, why would you want me to resign? No, I built this business. Yeah. You didn't build it. Yeah. Anyway, I was effectively ushered out, pushed out. And uh, I was pushed out by all the all the grey hair that, that yeah. I brought that in. you brought in. Yeah. Lesson so, learned? Um, yes and no. I mean, isn't that the way the world works? Mm. I mean, like... But you if know. you knew what you knew now, would you bring a load of grey hairs in? No, I'd have kept the board really small. Small, yeah. yeah I'd have kept the board really small. Um, and and it's funny that the the people that worked with me yeah. were all just like, well, they were scared for their own skins, obviously, yeah. but they were staggered at the way that these older people, yeah. well, they were. I'm I'm, the, I'm their age now. Yeah. Um, but you've got no grey hair. Well, I haven't got any hair. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> You whipped it off quickly. Yeah, yeah, I whipped it off for a show. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was just eased out. And yeah, that's all there was to it. And and then I started again. So what year? What year were you eased out? Nineteen ninety four. What was your next move from there? I bought the academy in Boscombe. The, the, the nightclub the academy. Did you? I took the lease on the academy. What did you see as the opportunity there? What was it before? It was a failed nightclub. And what did you see? What? How did you think? You're going to get so many people going to Boscombe in 94, away from Bournemouth. Because I thought that I had the ability to market that business, much like what you do. It's yeah. all about marketing, isn't it? Of course, yeah. And the ad, you, dance music was coming on. Yeah. So it was all about bringing big name DJs. Yeah. Um, I had a couple of guys that I knew well come and work with me, Nick Whitbread. And uh, we formed Slim, Slinky. Slinky. And where did that where did that brand Slinky come from? Where did where's the name come from? So it's very interesting. Um at the time, um one of the guys that in, in Oasis, one of the brothers, is married to a girl called Sarah. Um, she's Scottish, and she used to work behind the bar in 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 Bournemouth. And at the time she was very friendly with a guy at Mix Mag. And she said, "Why don't you call? Why don't you tell Richard to call it Slinky?" Okay. So Dan at Mixmag yeah. said to me, "What about Slinky?" Yeah. Done. Done. <laughs> Done. <laughs> anyway, so we branded it Slinky. We tried to trademark it and got into all yeah. sorts of hot water with, yeah. with the with the owners of Slinky. So I used to talk to the guy who was the who was the owner of the Slinky toy yeah. regularly on the phone. And he said, "Look." As long as you don't do anything that's going to hurt my brand, I, I haven't got a problem with it. Oh, that's nice of him. Yeah, he was good. Yeah. And occasionally, uh, we used to run hot water. We actually used once the actual Slinky toy yeah. in, in one of our posters. Yeah, okay. And he rang me out and he said, I told you. Yeah. And I went, look, it's, how's it hurting? He said, yeah. I'm not sure if I really like it. Yeah. Anyway, so we we, 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 we worked together and we, we, we found that out. And anyway, so we started the Slinky brand. Uh, it was a, we we had to go on a Friday night because yep. we couldn't get DJs on a Saturday night because yep. they're all playing in God's Kitchen, yeah. Cream, etc., yeah, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we went Friday night and we managed to get some really big names because no one else was doing Friday night. It was yeah. only us and one other brand I can't remember that, that used to do Fridays. Yeah. So we started it and it just went just mad. I mean, we were bussing. 
10 coaches in mm. from Portsmouth, Reading, right? Swindon, every Friday night. Mm. You know, and that was 10 coaches was like 500 people. That's right. And, you know, those days. We so that was your renter crowd. And then you would put the locals on top of that? Locals on top of that. Wow. I mean, what was the capacity then? Do you remember? What, the real one? Or the what? real one. <laughs> <laughs> Not the one you vaseline the door frames and push them all through. <laughs> Let, let's call it the people through the door. Through the door, yeah. Okay, <laughs> through yeah. the door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, on a big night, you know, we'd get two and a half thousand. Two and a half thousand. And what, what, was it, what sort of price was it back there? Was it tenors? Oh, Fivers? Fifteens? Uh, depending on what DJ. I yeah. mean, uh, you know, Paul Van Dyke. I mean, we'd get sort of 15, 16 quid. Yeah, amazing. I mean, which is amazing. Uh, but, but you see, what, what happened, because the club became so successful yeah. on Fridays, we then had... Hot and Horny on a Thursday, which yeah. was a student night. Yeah. That became hugely successful. And then we had Curious on a on a Saturday, yeah. which was more mainstream house music, yeah. became absolutely massive as well. Yeah. So we had three huge Brilliant. nights. Brilliant. And then, of course, we did Dickie, uh, Dickie's Disco Revival <laughs> once a month. Yeah. And, you know, it was just, it was just old disco music. Yeah. And that became yeah. huge because the club had that momentum, that, that momentum yeah. and that presence in the marketplace. Yeah. It was massive. I mean, you know, this is going back sort of, um, so I sold the club in 2003. So, so you had it a good nine years, did you? Yeah, I had it. I had it. I had good, well, seven good years. Seven good years. Okay. And two, two trying to get it to get it to work. Yeah. And um, it was, it was huge. So back then, like we're talking mid nineties up to the two thousands. You're th you're thinking if I get the big name DJs, pack out my club. Cool, this is working. When was it when you said, right, I want to take Slinky around the UK and then Slinky global? So we, um, I would say that in about nineteen ninety seven eight around there, yeah. We started to do parties globally. Yeah, I mean, some some weekends we were doing five or six parties globally. Yeah, I mean, when I mean globally, I mean Australia, Singapore, uh, Japan. Pe I mean, Peckham. Yeah, <laughs> New York. New York. <laughs> no, we were we were. Yeah. I mean, we had a guy working in the office, and and um, he basically just used to sell the brand because yeah. we could get the DJs. So so this business model is different. You're not throwing the parties there. You're actually saying you someone can license the brand of you license to use the, the name. Give us a couple of grand or whatever you were charging. Yeah, I went away on one of the tours. I mean, yeah. I, I went on the tour. I did New Zealand, Australia, Japan, and Kuala Lumpur. Uh, I mean, it was just the maddest, <laughs> maddest, maddest I five bet. days of my life. I bet. And I took a mate with me, and I'm, I don't, I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just amazing. I mean, yeah. I remember going to um, to Melbourne, and uh, where where we're doing it, it was we had a tent in a, in an outdoor stadium, yeah. and I never left the uh, porter cabin. <laughs> so I never even saw a DJ. <laughs> enough said. <laughs> enough said. Yeah. I mean, I, I just met these amazing people there, and we just partied in yeah. this Porsche cabin yeah. for for like twelve Quality. hours. So when was it? So you, you you licensed the brand out. What about taking the brand around the UK? I used to have a club in Leicester. Yeah, we used to go to Leicester. Used to go to Leicester. I can't remember the name of the club. We were both at the same club. I think I had the Wednesday night there. I think you had the Friday night. Yeah. Um, Industria. Should, yeah, Industria. Industria. And I was doing the student nights all around the country at the time, and you're obviously throwing your, your, your parties there. When was it that you realised you could pick up these DJs and hire clubs and say, I'm going to pack up 2,500 people every week in different clubs? Well, what happened was this is, as you well know, mm. DJs became greedy mm. and they wanted too much money. Mm. So when we were... And they still do. Well, yeah, I, I think it's even probably <laughs> it's worse, worse now. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, we, we'd hire, let's say, Paul Van Dyke. Yeah. And we'd say, yeah, okay, we'll pay you 15,000 pounds. Yeah. We'll pay you twenty thousand yeah. pounds, whatever it is, but 
you're ours for the whole night. Yeah. And he go, yeah, okay, fine. So we used to get someone. I used to give him my car and we used to put them into the opera house. Drive them. Drive okay. them. Whack I'm them up to Leicester at 150 mile an hour. Because <laughs> late at Make night. Make the most of it. Late yeah. at night, there's nothing on the road. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And like, whack them up to Leicester. Or whack Quick them half to hour. Brist- we used to do another one in DJ Bristol for night. And so we used to try and spin them round. Yeah. And that, that's how that's how we used to make it work so effectively for us. So did you ever go into actually CDs or magazines or anything, or did you stick to promoting? Yeah, we, we started that. We started Slinky Music. Um, that business failed. Yep. Um, it was successful. But what was Slinky Music? Well, we, we started producing CDs. Okay. And it was, it was successful at the start. Yeah. But a certain DJ who's very well known, who has a massive controlling influence in, on Radio 1, yeah didn't like the fact that we were moving into that market okay. and, and basically sidelined us from our, our music being played on radio. What was Black. his name? I can't tell you, Matt. Why not? Because <laughs> you know who he is. Why not? <laughs> no. no. What's his first name? I can't tell you that. What's his I surname? I'm not, going, I'm not going down this road. I don't want to do this <laughs> interview and get ripped tomorrow. <laughs> fair play, fair play. So, so how many years were you running the Slinky for? Was that your main thing? Was since, you, since Allied... Pushed you out of that thing and you uh, out of that business at the time. You then set up Slinky. You had the nightclub. What were you juggling? What were you thinking was the next venture for you? Well, I, I just... Or were you just happy promoting for a number of years and not having the pressure of police licensing council and everything else around? No, I, well, I bought that club um, and I just, you know, thought that I, I would start to build a, a private leisure business, which which is what I did, uh, which became Future... We'll go on to it. Yeah. Future 3000. Okay. And, uh, you know, building that Slinky brand was very time consuming yeah. and it was hard yeah. because, you know, we were doing the BIC in Bournemouth, yeah. we were doing the Brighton Centre, yeah. we were doing Exeter. What, so one-offs at the BIC? We, Not well, weeklies? No, no, one-offs. one-offs. We, so we used to do the Easter Ball and yeah. the Halloween Ball and we used to do 7,000 people there. Is that right? Yeah. In the big? In the big. Wow. And then the council got a bit tetchy about that and they stopped it. So we did about three years of that. Why were they tetchy, do you think? <sighs> It was the police and drugs and and everything else that went with yeah. seven dance music, dance music, yeah. seven thousand people, and also they they the wear and tear of, of that night, what it created. Yeah, the bic, it used to beat the bic up. But you you say you say, you say that like uh, people being shipped in seven thousand people, but there would never I'm sure there never any trouble there. There it was, was a, it was a dance where people well, were, used to leave at six in the morning. That's what I'm saying. People were taking ease and having a laugh and loving each other and whatever they were doing. There was no trouble, I wouldn't have thought. When we started it, the police didn't weren't involved. And yeah. then all of a sudden, I think, various whispers about what went on okay. and 7,000 people. And then, of course, there was this issue of, 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 of checking and searching everybody. Okay. So it took hours to get everybody in, pissed people off. Yeah. And we just stopped doing it. But, you know, we were doing, we were doing some nights, uh, we were doing, and New Year's Eve we did mm. a couple of times, uh, you know, Brighton mm. Centre, Bic, Exeter, and Cardiff. And we were rotating the DJs then, doing wow. exactly okay. the same. So we had five guys in fast cars moving, moving. DJs around yeah. the country. Were they good earners for you, the Bic? Yeah, great. Yeah. yeah. 7,000 people, what, 15 quid ahead? Uh, no, I think we were like 28 quid ahead. Was it 28, was yeah. it? So you must have had a big lineup for that. Yeah, huge. Fantastic. Yeah. And we used to have four rooms. Yeah. Well, you took the whole place. The whole place. Do you remember how much rent it was back in the day? They, it was all commission on tickets. So they would say, I want... I mean, we'd make... I mean, you know, I'm not going to no. bullshit. I mean, like, we'd make 150000 a night yeah. just out of the big. Yeah. 
Um, but you wouldn't the bars wouldn't be yours. You couldn't touch bars the bars. Ours. So let that big take the bars. You pay and you okay. And they would it just was take the ticket. Our, our money was on. Was tickets. it a win-win for the big and you? Oh, they're huge. Yeah, huge. Um, and I think a few people have tried to do it since, yeah. they, but I don't think it's ever been particularly successful. Mm. Interesting. So was that the start of you creating the brand Future Three Thousand? No. What happened then is that um, uh, in two thousand, in the early two thousands. Uh, Tony Blair or the late 90, 90s, yeah. uh, Tony Blair changed the licensing laws or, yeah. or announced he was going to change the licensing laws. I could see the writing on the wall for yeah. clubs. And dance music had gone through a very difficult stage. I mean, some of the bigger brands had tried to take house music too, too progressive and it got it got boring. The kids didn't really like it, the, okay. progressive, the progressive music, because okay. it was a bit, a bit heavy. Mm. And... I could see that 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 the whole thing was start well the, the the numbers in the club were starting to wane. You could see what was happening. Yeah. So licensing laws were changing. The whole dance music thing yeah. had gone was starting to go wrong. And I thought, right, now's the time. Let's get let's get into late night bars. Yeah. So I started Future Three Thousand. I opened a bar in Bournemouth called Slam, which is next door to Cameo, where it is now. What's that? The old Elements nightclub. Yeah. Next door so so next door to that. I've, I've, that was yours, was it? Slam? Yeah, it was mine. Slam okay, was what mine. capacity was that? Well, we then opened a club underneath called Urban, which, <coughs> which, which. Um, uh, so I suppose overall the capacity between upstairs and downstairs was about a thousand. Okay, lovely. And was that a feeder to the big nightclub Luminar Club next door? Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, we didn't do it for that reason because yeah, okay. we had a late night license, okay. but it was the first sort of late night bar. Yeah, in Bournemouth. And, in Bournemouth. Yeah. Because you didn't have to pay to drink till one, two, three in the yeah, morning, yeah. Uh, which was which was what the big dynamic of, in in the change in the licensing laws. Yeah. So you would get them you would get them drinking in your place at what kind of time? They they'd start they'd come in at nine and they stay there till three. Three. Okay. But they never to pay on the door. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then we opened Urban underneath, which we made it was a drum and bass club to yeah. start with. Uh, which we could still charge uh, door money for mm. because people who were into drum and bass would want to be there. Yeah, they'd pay. And then I went on from there and I opened Bliss down the road. Yeah. Um, oh, God, I remember Bliss. Yeah. Which was, you know, like, f it was state-of-the-art bar, wasn't That's it? That's right. Beautiful bar. Yeah, beautiful. beautiful. Rammed. Yeah. What capacity was that? Because that used to be... The, the, probably 1,200. But the actual turn, of, the, the amount of people that used to come in, probably about 3,000 throughout the night. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was, mm. it was an amazing success. And then I... What year, was, what year was this? What year did you open up Bliss? Uh, gosh, now, where are we? We must be... Um, sort of early 2000s late late 1990s early 2000s. 2000 okay yeah and then i opened toko next door yeah another 12 1300 capacity venue which completely destroyed cameo yes because and this is what i saw i yeah. saw that people were not going to bother going to nightclubs anymore yeah. because people didn't want to why would you pay yeah when you could stay in a bar yeah and um and then i carried on building that business future 3000 we owned uh crank uh which crank, is Hinton road yeah, I do. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And then we I didn't owned, know you owned that one. Yeah, we owned Crank. That was that was my my club. And then we owned uh, two two place Mint on Pool Key and Oyster Key. Yes. Um, and so we had a really good leisure business yeah. that Jim Beedham ran. Yeah, uh, you know Jim. Yeah. And um, of course, then you know I went back to something I'd always been involved in, in in a small way was developing. Yeah. I decided that you know I I wanted to come out of being day-to-day -day involved yeah. in, in leisure and hospitality and um, started getting more involved in, in building again. What uh, year did you start building? 
Well, I'd always my my very 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 first deal before I ever was in hospitality yeah. was a development. Okay. So my father owned a garage in St Michael's Road, and he had a lease on it, and it was the garage for the hotel that, that my parents had, and um, the freehold became available. Yeah. And I went to my dad and said, "Look, let's buy this freehold." This is before I got to, had done fast food. Yeah. And my dad said, "No." He said, "Why do you want to buy that for, son?" I said, I think we could do something with it. I think we could get planning on it, Dad. No, no. So I went to my mum and I said to my mum, look, I want to buy this garage. And she said, well, what do you want it for? I said, well, I think I'll get planning on it. She said, well, how much money do you need? I said, well, I don't know. Anyway, I bought this garage for £30,000. And my mum gave me or guaranteed the the bank loan that that I bought it with. Anyway, bought it for thirty grand, put an outline planning permission, I sold it for 90000 Okay. six months later. So this was back in the day. This yeah, and dropping. I went to my dad and I said, I sold it, but I'm going to split the profits with you, Dad. Yeah, nice. And because uh, he, he can believe it. So I'd always been involved in, 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 in I mean, that's always been my thing, you know, yeah. messing around with, with property. And, of course, you know, all the way through my life, um, property has played a massive, massive part of that. Were you owning the freeholds of these bars and restaurants? Or some of them, yeah. Some of them, okay. Oh, yeah, so, so... Um, I mean, if you take the on um, Paul Key, Henning's Wharf, uh, where where the flats are, where yeah. Mint was, yeah. you know, I I, I basically uh, paid to fit that out, owned the freehold, and then I did a sale and lease back, and so the bar cost me nothing. Yeah, okay, because of, because of the uplift in the yield compression, yeah. and so property's always been my thing mm. in everything I've done. It, everything's been pro- the background property led, been property yeah. led. Yeah. Anyway, so I decided that was it. I've had enough of hospital. I had enough of dealing with police. I had enough, and I left. <laughs> leave that to Jim. <laughs> And I cracked on and started Ravine and um, did three or four years in, 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 and became quite prolific in, in, in the area. And then, of course, 2008 came and um, Australian National Bank, who owns Clydesdale Bank, who are my lead bankers in the UK, yeah. decided that uh, they'd had enough of the UK and uh, they pulled the rug from underneath me. Mm. And that was it. And so so you're obviously hugely successful going on your journey in in. in Bowling alleys, bars, clubs—all this money would then fund your property development. Yeah, yeah. So those four years in Ravine, what was that like for you? Saying, right, I'm now going to be a full-on property developer. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, because it, it, it's my DNA. Isn't yeah. it? dealing with planners. Okay. Because I've dealt with planners and licensing all my life. You know, dealing with planners to deal with residential property was just to me a walk in the park, yeah. and it, it, as it is today, uh, it's tedious. Mm. It's uh, you've got to be tenacious. Mm. But it's an art. It's like playing a game of chess, yeah. and that's how I view it. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, the planner mo- moves a piece, and you think, right, how do I move a piece to bugger you up? Yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> so I, you know, 2008 came. I mean, uh, Ravine was, was, was hugely successful. What was the business model of Ravine? Was it to buy and get planning to flip? No. Or was it to buy, get planning, do it yourself, and then sell the properties? We, we sold some properties. Yeah. Uh, for cash flow purposes, but predominantly we were, I mean, we're doing what I'm doing today yeah. and we were just building a brand. Yeah. Um, and uh, 2008 came and um, the Americans ruined the world. What happened to you in 2008 when the whole recession came down? Well, it's really interesting. I went to, uh, I used to go away every year for a month, uh, the last two weeks of December, the first two weeks of January. And I went to Miami with my uh, partner at that time and uh, I was reading quite a lot of stuff in America, uh, you know, sat by the pool, 
and I was sort of working myself up into a yeah. bit of a frenzy that the that the market was going to crash. I came back. I'll always remember it. I called a meeting in the office. I said, "Right, we're not taking any new sites. Yeah. We need to finish what we've got." Yeah. And they all thought I'd gone mad. Yeah. And um, so then there then there was a renewal of our uh, our overdraft facility due, and. Uh, the guy that I dealt with at Clydesdale Bank was an Australian guy. He had decided to go back to Australia, so I had a, had a new uh, relationship manager who I didn't really get on that well with. And it was difficult renewing the overdraft facility. And um, I had to give all sorts of extra PGs and bits and pieces like that. And, and I thought, God, this is not looking good. They obviously are suspicious that something's going to yeah. go wrong with the market. And, and then, of course... Three or four months later, you had bearings and all yeah. the problems, and uh, every you know everything was going fine with the bank. You know they they I was being dealt with by uh, a person in in sort of uh, recoveries. Her name was Margaret Tate, very nice woman, very good woman. And um, I was away one weekend, and she rang me up and she said, "I've got some really bad news for you, Richard." And I said, "What's that?" She said, "We're going to put you into administration," and I went, "But why, Margaret?" I said, it's just going to cost the bank. I'm not drawing any money out of the yeah. business. Uh, you're, you're effectively getting free management. I said, if you put us into administration, not only am I going to lose absolutely everything, you, the bank, are going to cost yourselves money. Yeah. So it's out of my hands. Australia has made a dictate, a dictat rather. And, um, you know, anyone who's in distress has got to be put into administration. We effectively, Australia, want out the UK. And um, they put the development business into administration first, um, which is really obviously massively upsetting. And because I'd given cross guarantees from the leisure business, Future yeah. 3000. Yeah. So I ended up, I lost everything right? Okay. overnight. You know, the whole thing had gone. Did you, did you find when you look back, did you think you were growing too quickly from what you know now, what are 13, 14 years on? No. No. No, not at all. I think that um, Australian National Bank made a massive mistake because they ended up costing themselves money. But... Were you borrowing from that bank? Massively. What sort of money were we talking? Oh, tens of millions. Okay. I mean, I, I I, think my PGs alone were over £10 million. So your personal guarantee was 10 mil? Over 10 mil. Over 10 mil. And you're also borrowing over 10 mil from the bank? Way, way over 10 mil. To go and build lots of flats and houses probably, around Bournemouth and Paul? Probably borrowing 30, 40 million pounds. Wow. Borrowing that amount? Yeah. Jeez. But I mean, that, that's the nature of property development. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, I mean, if you take my development on Paul Key, um, I mean, it's sort of a... Your current one now? Yeah, it's just one of our developments. Yeah. I mean, that's a £15 million scheme that we're borrowing probably £13 million on. Um, How many million borrowed? Th 13. 13, okay. So that's one development. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, we've got, I don't know, six or seven of those yeah. going at the moment. So, so you know, that is the nature of, of property development. Mm. Um, so you're always borrowing heavily how how was it for you personally in 2008 when you went bust what was the knock-on effects of people around you who weren't getting paid well that's a really interesting story or a really interesting point so despite public opinion and despite all the rubbish that you see in the echo i made sure that all of the contractors because i don't employ i never employ a plaster or anything like that everything's done on jct fixed price contracts so I will employ a contractor to undertake that contract, which yeah. is a fixed price yeah. contract. So no one 
ever gets paid by me except that contractor. Okay. So I make one payment a month yep. to that contractor and then he pays all his subbies. Yeah, okay. So we I I was well aware of what of of, of the, the sort of fallout of what was going to happen. So I made sure the bank paid that contractor up to date. And quite clearly the uh, couple of the contractors did not pay their subbies and various other people, hence why there's been a little bit of fallout over the years and, mm. and, and accusations, et cetera, et cetera. So you know that that is up that was upsetting. Mm. Um, clearly, though, quite on, honestly, I'd lost my whole life's work. You know, I was worth a substantial sum of money yeah. in in two thousand well, before this happened in two thousand and eight, and you know, I was thinking about retiring mm. uh, or semi-retiring at that time. Um, I I was thinking, you know, Jim could keep the leisure business and pay me so much a year. Yeah. The boys that are in the office could carry on building building you know one or two developments a year yeah. and i just flip in and out and I, i'm never going to be what a person that sits with no. a fishing rod for yeah, seven yeah. days a week um but it was it, it was uh yeah it was a tough tough time and um you know i ended up living in a in a flat in in sandbanks i moved back into my house after a while after i realized it wasn't gonna need need to lose it um but no it was a very difficult time and mm. i was i then made personally bankrupt yeah um, and I was personally bankrupt for one year. I then got um, came out of my bankruptcy after one year. I then started to do quite well again quite quickly mm. because I knew that there were a couple of sites here and Some there opportunities. that I, I still had and kept kept running yeah. in the back of my head. So and, and the market had recovered quite quickly, yeah. funny enough, in this local area, yeah. residential. What, in 2008, 2009 and 10? Well, 2009, 10, there was a sort of a, a little bit of a was boom. Was there? Okay. Yeah. There was a little bit of an uplift. Yeah. Anyway, so I put in planning on a on a site, and I got managed to get two two houses on this site. I sold it to a developer, and I made money quickly again. Yeah. I was going, and then of course, uh, at, um, I don't know what year it would have been twenty twelve. Mm. Yeah, this would be twenty twelve now, um, and it was the twenty first of November twenty twelve. And the reason I remember that date is because of my ex wife's birthday. Mm. Uh, the police. At seven o'clock in the morning, came to my house, my business partner's house, my sister's house, um, my ex-wife's house in Colchester because she had a company with the name Car in it, and arrested us all. And we were all charged. And um, for three years, we fought it. And um, there were forty-two charges brought against me, and I was acquitted. What were those charges? Oh, it was just all sorts of... How many charges? 42 I had. 42 charges on you. And 42 criminal what charges. What was it? Fraud, theft? Everything. Was it, it went on and on and it on. It went on and on. I mean, in, in so much as even stuff like um, letting a property that was not on a buy-to-let mortgage. Um, right. You know, stuff like that. Yeah. Which, I mean, there must be millions and millions and millions and millions of people in this country yeah. that have, are doing that now. Um, but yeah, there were some very serious charges there as well. And... I, the police uh, did their utmost, or the officer did their utmost to ensure that I couldn't get good good counsel. Um, in, that means legal representation. Yeah. And um, various friends and people helped me, and I managed to get very good legal counsel. And um, my legal counsel started to smell a rap. And they uncovered that, that certain documents had gone missing. And as a result of that, 
um, the trial was was cancelled. So there were two trials. There was a post bankruptcy trial, yeah, um, and a pre bankruptcy trial. And the pre bankruptcy trial collapsed in two days. Uh, the the jury never sat, yeah, because documents had been. Uh, there's a thing called unused evidence, yeah. And if you if the if the police don't use the evidence, they have to give it to the other side and various pieces of unused evidence have been binned, yeah. which my QC had uncovered. The judge, uh, after the third piece had gone missing, decided that the trial must stop and so he, we acquitted. He then ruled that all of the witnesses' statements for the next trial need to be reviewed by a different police force. We were four, It was the worst four weeks of my life. Mm. So I had four weeks of waiting for the second trial. Jeez. Anyway, I went in there into Winchester Court on that day and um, the judge, same judge, sat down and he asked the Queen's barrister or the Crown barrister to stand up and uh, do, you have a, do you have a case against Mr Carr and the, his defendant and the other defendants? And she said the Crown have no case to answer uh, or wished not to, produce, wished not to press any charges. And he said, well, what do you mean by that? Well, we've re-interviewed everyone and there are massive discrepancies between the evidence, the original evidence, and what we've now found. And that was the end of it. So how long did this go on for? Three years of my life. And what was that feeling like in the morning when you're getting... Did the, I, I take it the police knocked the door down? They they had a battering ram with them. They never knocked the door down because I came down and opened it. And how many were there of them? Ten. With dogs? Uh, dogs, arms? everything. No arms. No arms. No. They searched the house, pulled the house pieces. What were they looking for? Cash and drugs, I, th- I believe, but they found nothing, um, which is, which is, which is obviously, uh, I mean, I mean, I, I was laughing. Yeah. I even, I, I knew a couple mm. of the police officers and I said, I don't know what you're doing. Mm. So what are you expecting to find? And, and, and they did the same with Jim Beedham. You know, they searched his house and they said, well, we believe there's substantial sums of cash in this. In, in, in so the- they were after cash because you went bankrupt and they see that you're doing well again. Well, I think- Did that trigger, when you look back, do you go, I went bankrupt. And then I did a couple of houses. Do you reckon that pissed anyone off who didn't get paid yeah, well, from previous? I mean, quite quite clearly, I've obviously spoken to various people since and various people that are well connected. And I actually asked, why did it happen? Why why was I treated the way I was? Why did it was the investigation? And they said that it was because of public interest. Now, I, so I have some sympathy for the police in in, in that in that fact because. If you think about it, if a substantial number of people write in saying there's no way that Richard Carr has gone bankrupt, you yeah. must have millions yeah. hidden. And that's what the perception, the general perception, even today, yeah. I think the general perception is, well, he must have had millions hidden. How's he got going again? Yeah. Well, don't forget that I work bloody hard yeah. and I think I'm relatively good at what I do. Um But the perception at the time was that I had millions stashed away. Now, if I tell you, that during the investigation, um, the police even had federal agents in America searching boatyards. I mean, it was that that severe. What, looking for your boats? Looking for boats and money yeah, and okay. property all over the world. Mm. I mean, I, I in my life, I've powerboat raced, as you know, yeah. and I, you know, I've raced all over the world. And, you know, occasionally I'd open bank accounts in Spain or 
or Monaco or America, which they all had. Yeah. They never had any money in them. They yeah. might have had twenty twenty dollars in or yeah. something like that. But they 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 assumed that I had millions stashed. Yeah. I mean, and they found nothing. Yeah. You know, and that's one of the things that I think was rather strange about the whole mm. thing. I mm. think that they the day when they started that investigation, they started with the pretext and with the thought in their mind. He's got millions yeah. stashed somewhere, yeah. and we're going to find it. Yeah. And they never found it. Mm. And the only thing they couldn't take away from me is the ability that I have a good brain, and I'm I'm motivated and a driven person, and I will come back. Yeah, because uh, I'm not the sort of person that falls on the floor and stays on the floor. Yeah, yeah. I'm like you. We 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 have that DNA in us, mm. and we we're fighters, mm. and, and we get up and go again. Mm. What was that feeling like knowing you had three years of this hanging around your neck for you being at the time you were kind of Mr. Bournemouth, you know, you changed the face of Bournemouth nightclubs, bars, everything else that was going on then back in the day. What was that feeling like? The recession hit, then you went bankrupt and then this double whammy on top. It was awful. I mean, uh, yeah, it was terrible. How bad? Bad. Was it bad enough that you were going to make a, a stupid move for yourself? You know, it was dark. Let's call it that. It was. It was awful. How, to be frank. How many years do you think you were feeling in a dark place for? Well, probably one and a half years. Okay. It was awful. It was. Um, it was wrong. Hmm. It was wrong. And were you in a dark place, didn't want to leave the house? No. Or was it a dark place that you couldn't look at people in the eye? Or was it a dark place you didn't know what people were thinking? What, what was going on in your mind? I had to deal with it and get on with it. Yeah. And uh, I did that. Mm. And, um, you know, I had a young son. Mm. How old was he? He was a baby. Yeah. And uh, that's what kept me going. Mm. At that time, were you thinking, I could get banged up here? Yes. Yeah. And how long was it you thinking you could get done for? Well, if it all gone, if 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 every if everything had gone against me, um, and if I effectively, if if I hadn't have had the QC that I had, who put the time in to sort through the minutiae, yeah. if I'd have had legal aid, I would not be here today with you. Mm. But because she put the time in. Mm and realised that something wasn't right here, mm. I would have been inside for probably six or eight years. Actually doing six or eight, or been given eight and do half of that? Or do you think be given 16 to do eight? No, I, I think it would have, I'd have been given a six or eight years. Wow. I mean, you know, effectively, the big, the biggest thing in my life that I think about regularly is that that police officer is still serving in Dorset Police. Do you know his name? Yes. Uh, he was suspended for six months. He was demoted one one band, and he's now back serving. And basically, he stitched me up. Why do you think he stitched you up? I think he was under pressure from senior people. Okay. I think that what happened was quite simply this. They set out on a journey, thinking that I had millions of pounds hidden all over the world. When they couldn't find it, he went back and he said, well, the lid's off, off the box now, and you've got to, find, you've got to get him. You've got to find something to get him on. Yeah. And uh, hence the reason why they fiddled with evidence. Yeah. Is that what they did, fiddle with evidence? They fiddled with evidence. Wow. They hid. They hid unused evidence 
and they fiddled with statements. Yeah. Clydesdale Bank refused to give evidence in that trial because the head of legal in Clydesdale was so appalled at the way that they'd gone about what they'd done. Yeah. And so, you know, they wanted to stitch me up. Mm. I think they got to a stage where we can't believe that he hasn't got all this money hidden. Yeah. Because they they believe that's what in their minds, yeah. like the public, yeah. they thought, yeah, Richard Carl's gone bankrupt, rubbish, of course he hasn't, he's got millions hidden. Yeah. And I didn't have millions hidden. You know, I was I was when I moved back into my house, I didn't even have a fridge. Yeah. Um, and you know, I've clawed my way back up, worked bloody hard. Mm. Um, I've got good, good, good people behind me now and some really, really great, great businessmen who are, who are helping me. What was that feeling like? You said you were in a dark place for a year and a half. Was it the last of the three year trial? Was it the last year and a half where you thought, oh, my God, I'm getting no. close? Was it the first year and a half? I think that. No, I, I think, do you know, it was the beginning. OK, it was the beginning that was really dark. Yeah, because. I think one day I'd been to London and met my barrister and and uh, the the other QC that was there and they said, Richard, you do realise that the consequences of what what's been what you're facing and I think I walked out of there and thought, oh my god, mm. um, reality. And but that's when I sort of gained my strength and said, but that it's all wrong, mm. it's ridiculous. Mm. Um, and you know that this the the problem is is that the way that they manipulate the 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 the, the truth to fit their 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 wishes, mm. you know, it's like they've written on a board, right? We want to get him for this, 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 yep. this, this, and we will manipulate what we find about him yeah. to fit those those charges. Mm. And I think you know, it's not just me. It's it's if if anyone ever gets into that position. Uh, beware and and really keep your keep yeah. wits about you. Yeah. What was that feeling like when you were in the court that day? You're going to court. You didn't. Were you thinking I'm going to get away with this on that day? Not get away with it, but actually not be charged on that day. Or were well, you very thinking- interesting. The, the first trial, uh, I remember arriving at the court, and do you know what? I had a real air of confidence in in uh, about about myself. I went and had some breakfast in in Winchester, and I walked in the courtroom. Walked into the court and I met Miranda, who's my QC, Miranda Moore. And um, she sat me down and um, she said, I've got some very good news for you. And I said, what's that? She said, it would appear that um, I've uncovered something. And I said, what, what's that then, Miranda? And she said, um, well, Clydesdale Bank have refused to give evidence in the trial and I've pushed them why. And they've told me exactly why. And uh, it would appear that the the officer has not been playing properly. And I said, oh. and, I, and when I walked in the courtroom, I, I don't know what it was. It was almost like I had a, um, like a, a halo had, yeah. had grown around me that this was all going to go wrong for them. And it went wrong for them yeah. from minute one. Um, you know, the, the jury was sworn in. And then she stood up and said to the judge, uh, I wish to bring to your attention, sir, blah, 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 blah. He swept that off the first the first one, which I was slightly surprised at. Mm. We were then all, all told to go home and then we asked to come back the next day and she'd found something else, uh, uh, an email that had been destroyed, um, which was would, would, was helpful to me. Yeah. 
she brought that to his attention and he was obviously not happy mm. um but he still didn't dismiss the trial and we were sent away again and then the next day we came back and she'd found something else and she said this this will be it it'll be over yeah and um we sat down we were in the box i was there with my sister and everybody else in a, in a row and um trial was that was it it was over um relief but that four weeks after that to the four week gap as i said earlier uh to the next one was it was hell mm. it was a it was a horrible four okay weeks. so then the second trial and then when you were in the court then and they said you're away you're not going to get charged what did you do that night well, that's the weirdest thing. You'd think you'd go out and party yeah. and get drunk. Didn't. Yeah. I was um, sort of, I don't know, really. It was a really weird mm. feeling. Mm. Horrible feeling. Yeah. Yeah, it was terrible. So this was, what, 2015? Um, I think it was, um, funny enough, it was one day. It was the 20th of November, 2014. 2014. Yeah. So you've gone from 2000. 20. You've had a six, seven year stint of a pretty tough place. Yeah. With everything going on. What was your next move from 2015? Did you feel like you're having a fresh start now, but you're going to have people maybe going against you? Or if you're going to do projects that go out in the, the local newspaper and you read all the comments below, how's that feeling for you when you read those comments? Don't bother me. It doesn't, in this, you know, everyone can say oh, it doesn't bother. It must slightly. It doesn't bother me. What it, what it, what, when I read those comments, I mean, I've, I've actually contacted certain people who've made those comments yeah. because if they make them on Facebook, if they, if they fill in their various bits on Facebook. Yeah. And my, my partner, um, on occasion has sent me, she, I'm not on Facebook. She sent me, oh, this bloke's got works at such and such. Why don't you call him? So I've called various people yeah. and said, uh, you've made a really, really derogatory remark about yeah. me. So if you don't do something about it, I'm going to give it to my lawyers in the morning. Yeah, and you've got till six o'clock to take it off, and they've apologised and taken it off. Yeah, I I think that the government at the moment are trying to or thinking about bringing legislation on social media that if you have a social media account, you need to have a government ID. I totally agree. I completely agree with it. Right. It's absolutely yeah. outrageous yeah. that people can make comments like yeah. that, not just about me, but about anyone, yeah. and get away with it. Yeah, it's wrong. Um. And I think that it uh, would be a good thing if that if that was brought in. Do you think all of this over the last 30, 40 years has made you mentally even tougher and thicker skinned? Yeah, probably. I I think that, um, you know, I lost both my parents uh, two years ago, well, a year ago, in fact. And, you know, I look back, I think my mother was always very good at, at uh, making me tough. Were you a mummy's boy or dad's boy? Was neither really because okay. I was always at boarding school. Mm. Um, Who would you go to if you had a problem? Neither. Is that right? I dealt with it myself. <laughs> Don't tell them. <laughs> they were always too busy. Yeah. They were, I mean, they were, my mum was a hotelier, and my dad sort of never really had time for us. Uh, to be honest with you, and um, <clears throat> I, I, I didn't really go to either of them. I, I just deal with it myself. So moving on, twenty fifteen. What have you done the past six seven years? Built this new business. And the business is called? Fortitudo. And what is Fortitudo? Uh, it's a development business. Um, you know, we are, uh, we started just doing planning for people. Yeah. Um, when I came after, after the issues with everything. Yeah. Um, I was lucky enough that a certain person um, gave me the responsibility of doing their planning. That was John Smith at Sultan's Marina. Yeah. I was successful in achieving that planning. Um, down in Poole. Down in Poole, yep. in Lilliput. So we got planning for a 
75 bedroom hotel and a beautiful 54 um, unit apartment block on the site. And I was successful at doing that. And um, he uh, he had faith in me. And I, and then the business has grown really from just doing planning into obviously developing. I mean, at the moment, we've got over 200 units in construction. Um, as far west as Bath, far, you know, we've got sites as far west as Bath, far east as Brighton. Yeah. Um, we've obviously got a lot going on in the local area. You know, we employ 13 people in the head office now. Mm. Head office as well? In Ashley Cross. Okay. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's going well. You've certainly lived an eventful life. Yeah. But I, I planned that. Yeah. I, I've, I've always wanted to uh, push and be, I was a dyslexic child. And I think as a dyslexic child, you you have that will to push on. And you have the creative mind. Yes. It's funny back in the day, if you're dyslexic, people think, oh, he's dyslexic, go in the corner. Now, if you're dyslexic as a kid, I was like, yeah, he's dyslexic. He's going to be the best entrepreneur in the world exactly. and he's going to be so creative. And it's quite it's amazing. Quite weird. It's quite weird, isn't it? Well, I went to, um, I, I went to Castle Court School mm. as, a, as a child and um, they, told my, they told my mother I was going to be a dunce. And my mother took me to uh, London. I always remember it. I was only about six years old. Going on the train was a big thing when you're mm. six years old. And um, went to see a specialist in London. And they said, oh, no, he's, he's, he's not right. There's something wrong with him. Mm. And, of course, that was in the mid-1960s. Mm. And um, I think life was uh, slightly different then mm. than it is today. Anyway, my mother argued with the consultant and said that, well, he was the first child to be able to count to 100 in, in his kindergarten school and the first child to be able to do his alphabet in the kindergarten school. How could he suggest that? Mm. They said, well, he, he just doesn't seem to get it. Mm. So I went to one of the, well, it was the very first dyslexic school in the country called Ravenscroft. <laughs> and um, everyone in that school was dyslexic. And, you know, there were there's a guy there, <clears throat> you'd know, probably know the name, but Guy Hands. Mm. Uh, he was in my class and like he's one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the country, mm. isn't he? A uh, fund manager. And um, so I, I, I actually think dyslexia, as you just said, is actually a gift. Absolutely. And because I have a spatial awareness mm. that other people don't have. Like, you know, I can walk into a empty room that's just concrete and I can see what you could do. With yeah. It and see exactly how it is. And, and a lot of people don't have that spatial awareness. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people that look at apartments that aren't furnished think, oh, no, I don't really like it. And then you take them to the furnished one on mm. exactly the same apartment. Fall in love. And they go, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I of, whenever I see that, I often laugh in, mm. my, in my mind, thinking that's really weird. Mm. Um, how, would, how would you, in this next chapter of your life, since all the, the huge successes, the huge highs, the huge lows, the huge pressures. How do you want to be to be perceived moving forwards? Well, I mean, I, my my plan. I mean, because I'm sort of coming to that age now where you've got to start thinking about the sort of. I, mean, I wish I, I don't wish to say it, but you know, I'm in my early sixties. Uh, if I'm lucky, I'll live to my mid eighties. If I'm unlucky, I could live mm. another ten years. Mm. Um, Quite clearly, I've got young children, so I want to make sure they're well uh, kept. Um, I think that um, I'd like to float the business that I'm that I currently got for Tudor. I think that that is on the cards mm. in probably two, maybe three years. Um, you know, it, it's a it, it's becoming a very substantial business, and I'd just like to bow out of doing that. Mm. 
um, take my money and uh, do whatever I've got to do. Mm. Like you're consciously, I think you'll consciously be creating. You ain't going to the grave in retirement. No. You'll be creating to the day you go into the grave. Yeah, I, I, I'll die at my desk. Yeah. You know, so how would you personally like to be perceived moving forward? I don't know, really. Mm. Uh, I don't, it's not something that's really bothered me. I, I just, I like being, I, I am a creative person. Mm. The thing I enjoy about what I do now is creating buildings and creating spaces. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, I don't just do this for the money. Obviously, the money is important to yeah. me. Um, but it's I the like the journey, isn't it? Yeah, I like the mm. journey. I like looking at things, yeah. and I and I I have to be proud of what I achieve. Yeah. You know, when when we when we build something, I like to look at it and think, yeah, that's good. We've yeah. done a good job there. Yeah. I like to go into apartments and think somebody's going to buy this and they're going to be really happy. Yeah. That that means a lot to me. Mm. Um, and I and I I think that um, you know I've I've always been a, a marmite character. Mm. Um, but, you know, I'm a reliable person and, you know, my friends that know me really well would, would say that yeah. the one person you could always go to if you're really in the shit is Richard. Mm. Um, but then there's a lot of people that don't like what I do because I've had ups and downs yeah. and they they struggle that somebody that hits the bottom can get back up and go to yeah. the top again. Yeah. And I think that that's part of the problem with the British mentality. Yeah. People unfortunately don't want people to succeed no mm. and there's a, a jealous streak in a lot of people i mean like you know i think that we've become a nation of the 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 the, the masses want mediocrity mm. and mediocrity is not something in my world that yeah. i could stand yeah. and much like in your world mm. i want to get to the top mm. i'm a capricorn mm. and what do goats do they walk to the top of the hill it's as simple as that mm. Mm. Richard, I have thoroughly enjoyed this chat. I really do appreciate your honesty because we've Thank gone you. through four, five decades here. Yeah. Four decades of building businesses, losing businesses, selling businesses, huge success, court cases. We've gone through the whole lot and uh, it's lovely to hear. And I really appreciate you coming into the studio here and being super honest. Thank you. Appreciate You're a gentleman. It. Good man. Bye-bye. Cheers, Richard. Bye-bye.